0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Economics, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Tim Jones and today I'm delighted to be joined by Olly Rain, author of Walking the High Wire, published this year by Palgrave Macmillan. Since 2018, Olly has been the Governor of the Bank of Finland and therefore also a member of the Governing Council of the European Central Bank. During his 30-year career in public service, he has been, among other things, a government minister in Finland, a member of the European Parliament, and European Commissioner for Enlargement just at the moment the EU took in 10 new member states. But today, we are going to discuss what took a football mad boy from southern Savonia to Brussels via Oxford and Minnesota, and his fascinating behind-the-scenes experience at the centre of the Euro's decade-long crisis using the word crisis in its original sense as a decisive turning point. Part policy proposal, part autobiography, and part political memoir, at the heart of Walk in the High Wire are the four crucial years from 2010 to 2014, when Olly served in Brussels as Commissioner for Economic and Monetary Affairs. Olli, welcome to the podcast.
1: Many thanks, uh, Tim, and uh, I'm very glad to discuss uh, Europe uh, and uh, the euro crisis and uh, walking the high wire with, uh, with you and uh, your audience, your your listeners.
0: Thank you. Well, unless I'm missing somebody out, um, aside from people talking about their own national crises, I think only Simeon Jankov has written a memoir covering the pre-2015 crisis period in general. Now, obviously, you were much more at the core of the the eurozone crisis management what what prompted you to write this book and to write
1: it now mainly for two reasons Uh, first of all uh, there has been uh, quite a lot of uh, uh, accounts uh, written about uh, the euro crisis Uh, some uh, uh, quite good analysis uh, but some clearly missing several elements of uh, all the Say root causes or development uh, of the crisis. Uh, so I, I simply wanted to set the record straight uh, from my point of view. Of course, everybody has their own point of view, but uh, I, I try to be as uh, as uh, factual and uh, analytical as uh, as possible. And uh, secondly, I find it uh, important that uh, we learn the lessons of the of any crisis, but especially of uh, of the euro crisis, uh, which uh, was part of the, the broader environment of uh, two crises. Uh, the first first one being the financial, global financial crisis of uh, 2008, uh, 9, 10. And then the second phase in Europe, uh, which affected the global economy, was the euro crisis, which uh, I date basically from 2010 till 2012 with its roots in the previous decade and uh, those macroeconomic uh, imbalances. So I think it's important that we learn the lessons of the crisis. uh, And uh, in fact, uh, in my view, we have uh, learned uh, uh, several lessons in a sense that uh, our response uh, as uh, both uh, central banks uh, and uh, national governments uh, in the global community has been clearly better and uh, more forceful Now, as we have faced uh, the COVID-19 crisis or the corona pandemic and its uh, damaging effects uh, on on the economy, we have uh, responded with uh, an overwhelming force, uh, both uh, in monetary policy and uh, also increasingly in in, uh, uh, fiscal policy.
0: Yeah, before we get into the detail of policy, which I'm very keen to do, um, you begin the book with the story of your childhood and the development of your Europeanism at a time when Finland was outside the EU. In your view, how important was your background to what you later became?
1: I think uh, we are all products of uh, our communities and uh, their histories, and uh, then we learn and uh, hopefully evolve uh, on the way. In my case, uh, uh, in Finland was uh, still... Uh, uh, say in the late post-war period when I was born and uh, and raised uh, in the city or town of uh, Mikkeli in, in Eastern Finland and uh, I could feel the uh, Cold War and uh, that era quite uh, strongly. The Finnish people are very determinedly uh, part of uh, Western Europe uh, or at least uh, Say uh, Western civilization, and uh, mm-hmm. that's why uh, very clearly in the referendum in 1994, the Finnish people voted in favor of uh, EU membership uh, at the time. So uh, I think uh, this background, uh, including both, uh, say, uh, uh, growing up with uh, the development of the Nordic uh, democracy and uh, Nordic welfare state uh, in in Finland. Uh, And uh, seeing also uh, uh, countries like Estonia and uh, other countries of uh, Central and Eastern Europe uh, uh, strive for their national independence uh, during the time of uh, real socialism and uh, Soviet occupation. Uh, Of course, that uh, has left its mark, and uh, that's why I think it's uh, it's very important that uh, we build bridges in Europe, uh, both between the West and uh, the East. uh, and uh, between uh, the North and uh, the South, uh, which has uh, more recently been, uh, say, the dominant uh, dimension in uh, in the Eurozone and uh, on issues concerning the Euro.
0: Mm. I mean, the book gives a very interesting narrative account of um, crisis management in, in Greece, Ireland, Spain, Portugal and Cyprus, and actually even Italy. Um, and we could talk about this all day but I, what i'd like to do is pick out a few special moments that you that you uh, write about for me the first of these is the internal debate about debt restructuring during 2010-2011 and you describe you describe this as voldemort because it was dangerous even to to say the words out loud um now eventually we got there and there was a greek debt swap but i was surprised to learn that during the winter of 2010-2011 you had a private meeting with Commission President Barroso in which you suggested the idea of a generalized uh, Southern European restructuring over a long weekend. Please please tell us more about that because you only touch on it. How how far did that go?
1: Well, it was uh, one of the ideas, one of the creative ideas uh, that uh, I floated. uh, And uh, we often had uh, very confidential creative discussions uh, with uh, Commission President uh, Jose Manuel uh, Barroso and uh, this was uh, during one of the uh, deepest uh, troughs uh, of the euro crisis uh, Mm. uh, when uh, we were quite uh, impatient of uh, having a comprehensive crisis response uh, because we felt that uh, the member states were too divided uh, uh, to find a a way out, uh, to find a way forward uh, uh, and uh, solve the crisis. Uh, You're right that uh, uh, the fundamental issue at the time concerning uh, uh, debt sustainability was uh, very much related to obviously Greece, uh, and uh, there were in fact uh, uh, two stages of uh, debt restructuring in uh, in the summer of 2011 and in the spring of uh, 2012, which then led to a haircut of uh, about 60-70 uh, percent uh, in, in total, uh, which was important uh, uh, in order to help uh, Greece uh, overcome its, uh, its uh, enormous uh, economic and uh, financial uh, difficulties. But uh, as I write in my book uh, during that uh, weekend discussion with uh, President Barroso, we, we came to a conclusion that uh, it would be too dangerous and uh, and uh, politically uh, too much of an uphill struggle uh, to achieve that uh, and uh, thus uh, we had to continue to work uh, in a more stepwise uh, incremental manner because mm-hmm. uh, a big bang would have been uh, virtually impossible to, to achieve even though it would have been probably economically first best, uh, but uh, as we often live in the European Union, we live in the, in the world of uh, second best, uh, politically mm-hmm. possible second best, uh, we, we have to find uh, other ways further in this, uh, this context.
0: Do, do you think i mean obviously the environment now is very particular given the the impact of the pandemic but assuming that hadn't happened do you think the eurozone would now be in a a have have the correct environment where instead of talking about countries being in such a bad situation that they have to leave the eurozone that you could instead have a default within the eurozone and it would be manageable given everything that has been put in place since since 2010
1: 2011 well i i doubt that uh, nevertheless uh, i think uh, we have uh, we have been uh, quite solidly on a path of uh, recovery and uh, growth uh, since uh, spring 2013 after we stabilized uh, we meaning in this context uh, the european decision makers both uh, at the european central bank uh, at, uh, and at uh, the member states uh, and at the European uh, Commission so since uh, 2013 uh, we were on a, on a path of uh, recovering growth and improving employment uh, up until the corona pandemic uh, hit uh, Europe hit the world and hit uh, Europe and uh, we could see that uh, even though there was a variety among the member states uh, but uh, there was a uh, uh, nevertheless, uh, sustained and uh, relatively strong growth uh, in the recent years. Uh, uh, not only in Germany, but in, uh, in several other member states uh, as well. And uh, at the same time, uh, uh, since uh, the long real rates uh, were low and uh, we experienced uh, low inflation or a long period of uh, very low inflation, uh, at the same time, uh, the interest rates uh, and uh, the policy rates of the European Central Bank uh, were kept very low. And this also helped uh, the member states uh, to uh, deal with uh, uh, their debt problem, not, not to solve it, uh, but uh, to stabilize it. And we could see that uh, thanks to strong growth uh, and low rates, uh, the uh, public debt to GDP ratio was actually reduced uh, in the last couple of years before the pandemic hit, the corona pandemic hit, hit Europe. So, But now we are in a new situation and in this context the European Central Bank has done a lot in terms of monetary policy stimulus and the member states are increasingly providing fiscal stimulus both Individually and uh, together as the European uh, Union.
0: Yeah, um, you're, you're not the first to to do so, but you 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 also lift the lid a little on on Plan Z, uh, the contingency plan for Greece's departure from the eurozone, that was first discussed at Eurogroup like well, Eurogroup official level in 2011. Evidently, this plan was fully worked up by the time of summer 2015, and, and some of it even implemented on uh, capital controls and bank holidays and so on. But how detailed did it get during your tenure? Do you, do you think Europe would have been ready for uh, such a contingency at that time?
1: You're right that uh, many of the elements uh, were applied uh, in, uh, in the context of uh, Greece, uh, mostly by the Greek government, by the way, Mm. in the summer of 2015 but uh, also by the uh, Cypriot government uh, in uh, 2013 uh, already Mm. so uh, of course uh, we never know what is the counterfactual but uh, 2015 is not that far time-wise from 2011 or 2013 so I think uh, it was uh, say as realistic uh, a scenario for a we didn't want to talk about plan b because we didn't we didn't have to deny that we do not have a plan b so we had to plan z instead Uh, and uh, it played uh, actually an important uh, role to my understanding in uh, explaining to key policy makers key decision makers uh, in the national governments uh, like in the german government governments uh, what would be the consequences of uh, a possible uh, Greek uh, uh, default and uh, subsequent uh, departure from the from the euro and thus uh, the sheer scenario of uh, Plan Z or actually the sheer scenario where a Plan Z or the Plan Z would have to be applied uh, helped to imagine uh, the terrible consequences uh, of uh, possible crexit and uh, thus uh, stimulated uh, action and governance minds and deeds in order to avoid uh, such an outcome which was avoided uh, which was achieved in 2011-12 after Mm -hmm. very difficult uh, decisions which were difficult uh, both for greece and in greece uh, as well as uh, for so-called creditor countries uh, stretching from Germany to the Netherlands uh, from Austria to Finland so uh, the function the main function of uh, Plan Z uh, at the time was uh, in a way to not to scare but to bring imagination forward uh, about the terrible consequences uh, and uh, avoid uh, such consequences and uh, in this sense it served its purpose
0: yeah in that sense it was it was something that would have been quite useful ironically in the public domain because because quite a lot of i think quite a lot of people in markets at the time were very casual about the idea of uh Greece leaving the eurozone imagining it was like giving up a currency peg or giving up the ERM or so, or something like that whereas your contingency plan uh you know it 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 went through the the major impacts on payment systems, on, on uh, uh, Gresham's law, on the impact on migration, all sorts of things that, that I think a lot of people in the markets hadn't really taken into account.
1: That's uh, that's uh, probably correct. Uh, but at the same time, for us, it was uh, uh, very difficult to talk about that in public because it would yeah. have also at the same time probably scared the markets even more than they they already had been scared. <laughs> so uh, it was a real catch 22 situation and uh, and uh, uh, but we don't know. I mean that's uh, that's uh, would have been that would have been uh, another way of doing it uh, with uh, major risks. Uh, difficult to say which was uh, a, a better way. Mm-hmm. Now this was, you- uh, this had its uh, it had its purpose both in terms of uh, uh, pushing. Uh, uh, new imagination and galvanizing uh, uh, minds uh, for decisions. And yeah. also, secondarily, uh, to uh, find ways and means uh, by simulation, which were used uh, then uh, in the context of uh, Greece and Cyprus uh, later on during the crisis.
0: Yes. Um, you You retell two stories about... Um, how Prime Minister Zapatero and Prime Minister Socrates refused help from outside for as long as they could. And in fact, there's this one moment where Angela Merkel makes a quantified offer to to Zapatero um, uh, of a credit line, which would also be offered to the Italians at the same time, and he turns it down. Now, throughout throughout the debt crisis, I I never understood why governments were so resistant to help. Because if you don't take help, you just have to implement unpopular policies on your own. Um, as a poli- well, as a former politician yourself, do you have more empathy? Do do did you understand how they felt more than
1: perhaps I did? Well, perhaps uh, understand uh, and uh, felt empathy, but. Uh did not uh, appreciate or, or uh, fundamentally accept uh, that uh, line of action. In fact, uh, as you referred to former Prime Minister uh, Zapatero, I'm uh, very carefully quoting his uh, own memoirs oh, yes. uh, called yeah. uh, El Dilemma, which uh, Paul Taylor, the former uh, Europe chief of Reuters, uh, has, uh, has written about or did write about uh, at the time. So uh, apparently this really happened in the corridors, uh, mm. corridors of uh, Brussels in uh, one of the European Councils. Uh, that uh, Mr. Zapatero was uh, offered a very explicit uh, proposal by Chancellor uh, Merkel, which he he turned uh, down. Then mm. I think uh, the reasoning probably is that uh, it's very simple. That, uh, you very seldom win elections uh, after you have been. Uh, Taken or accepted uh, to take uh, a an economic uh, uh, conditional economic uh, and financial uh, support uh, program. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess uh, it is a matter of uh, in the public debate, uh, as you have been leading the country in the previous years, uh, that is considered uh, a a political and economic uh, policy failure. And uh, it seems to be quite uh, difficult to overcome that uh, impression, even though in uh, many cases, uh, if you had uh, taken this uh, uh, as an opportunity early enough uh, and early, early, clearly earlier than, uh, than uh, clearly sooner than later, you would then, then be better off uh, in terms of uh, economic development uh, and uh, you could uh, use the program uh, for your own uh, recovery. It is, it is not so unprecedented, uh, but somehow, somehow during the euro crisis, uh, uh, this logic uh, did not uh, carry the day. This time round, uh, and I'm talking of, talking globally. This time round, uh, if I recall correctly, during the corona pandemic, uh, the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, uh, has received uh, altogether more than uh, 100, I think the latest figure I've seen is 106 uh, requests uh, for emergency funding of mm-hmm. one or another kind uh, like uh, Flexible Credit Line or Outright uh, Programme. And that's uh, quite a lot, uh, 106 uh, out of uh, 190 members of the yeah. IMF. Uh, and uh, there are already 72 programmes uh, of various kinds uh, going on globally. So uh, uh, this shows that uh, in a crisis you can use this and uh, they can help stabilize uh, the the economy, both the national economies of individual countries uh, as well as uh, uh, the global economy. That's why we have the financial safety nets, uh, both uh, the IMF and in the European context, uh, the European stability mechanism.
0: You also describe a phone call right at the beginning of your your tenure in uh, in your second commission job um, in May 2010 with Tim Geithner, who was then the Treasury Secretary in the US, Mm -hmm. Um, and it made you wonder – this was just after the first firewall deal was done, and it made you wonder whether the EU had had its Hamilton moment, in other words, a defining catalyst to a fiscal federation. Now, in retrospect, it it wasn't, but do you think – the measures taken by the ECB and more, uh, more particularly by the European Council since March may turn out to be Hamilton moments.
1: Yeah, I recall I, I wrote in my I've written my book that uh, in uh, of that uh, period, uh, May two thousand and ten, when the European Financial Stability Mechanism and uh, facility were just created, uh, and uh, Tim Gartner gave me a call at uh, 15 a.m. on monday morning after we had uh, done our press conference uh, and uh, i write later on that uh, in retrospect uh, my imagination had taken me into a turbo driver and firmly into the air when i was uh, considering this uh, uh, the hamilton moment uh, of uh, of eurozone why so because uh, very soon the financial limitations uh, of the EFSF, uh, EFSM, EFSF uh, became clear of this uh, 2010 deal because it was uh, composed of sliced uh, pro rata or sliced guarantees uh, instead of uh, joint and several guarantee, like the next generation EU actually is uh, is uh, constructed. So mm. then we corrected that uh, by creating the European stability mechanism which is a firm capitalized uh, international institution and uh, the current leaders of the European Union uh, have learned their lesson in a sense that uh, the next generation EU is based on on uh, uh, the joint uh, uh, collateral of uh, of the European Union which gives it uh, the highest uh, credit rating also give it the highest credit rating and more lending capacity, thus. Mm. So, uh, in that sense, uh, uh, lessons have been learned. Uh, my view is that uh, I think uh, the next generation EU is uh, probably not uh, the Hamilton moment, but it is uh, a major Monet moment, uh, in a sense that uh, Jean Monet said uh, in, at his time that uh, Europe will be forged uh, through crisis, Europe will be created uh, through through crisis. Uh, and uh, I'm a functionalist, you uh, in, in a sense that uh, I think uh, we should not always uh, compare Europe and European integration to the United States of America, which is uh, clearly one important benchmark. But uh, the context is very different. Uh, the U.S. is uh, a federal state uh, from the beginning, while the European Union is uh, A community of uh, nation states or member states uh, where we have a substantial and increasing degree of uh, integrated uh, uh, political and economic uh, decision making. And uh, that's the way the European Union is likely to evolve also in the the future. It's uh, an evolutionary process, uh, Mm. fundamentally.
0: Yes. In so I mean in many ways, I thought your chapter or the part of the chapter on on France and Germany was the most relevant to where we are now in, uh, in, in mm. potentially in future policy because or either way, we will be after the pandemic. You, it, because there you outline the pilot scheme that you attempted with the French in 2012, 2013. So instead of setting a strict uh, budgetary target for the following year, you tried to link the pursuit of structural reforms to a more medium-term path of fiscal adjustment. Won't this have to be the future of the fiscal rules now, uh, especially regarding, for example, Italy and the conditions attached to the recovery funding? Because the, the, you know, the, the, the fiscal wreckage that, that the pandemic has wrought is going to make um, uh, what people do in the next fiscal year less, far less relevant than what they do over the next three to five.
1: I would very much agree on that, uh, and uh, what you say. And uh, in fact, uh, this was the direction of uh, the reform uh, uh, ten years ago already, mm-hmm. so that we would uh, look at uh, less, less, less at, at uh, the the short-term uh, fiscal targets, uh, nominal fiscal targets, and uh, focus much more on the sustainability of public finances. Uh, Over the medium term, Mm. and uh, uh, investment and economic reforms uh, that uh, help bring growth uh, over the medium term. The handicap is probably that, uh, or the the obstacle at the time was that, uh, even though this was the formal policy, but uh, in the then debate, uh, uh, the fiscal targets uh, were quantifiable, numerical while uh, the structural and uh, reform policies uh, are more qualitative relative to productivity employment uh, and uh, they are in a way less conducive for for uh, short-term policy debate political debate uh, with uh, big headlines Mm. but uh, i think that's the way to that's the way to go and in the current context uh, this would uh, mean that uh, we should not uh, I mean, we cannot forget about uh, public debt. Uh, I, I don't believe in any any uh, magic trees. Uh, mm. <laughs> but uh, at the same time, uh, in the short term, uh, this policy has been uh, well reasoned, well grounded, uh, and uh, we should now focus on the medium term: how we can best uh, boost uh, sustainable growth, uh, green growth, uh, through both investment and reform and uh, I hope that uh, the EU decision-makers uh, can use the international decision-makers uh, can use the national reform programs uh, to this effect uh, because they are expected to provide the uh, uh, conditionality for the EU recovery fund uh, or the use of mm-hmm. the EU recovery, recovery fund uh, and uh, I think this kind of a macro conditionality, which is uh, linked to economic reforms uh, and uh, sustainable investment uh, makes plenty of sense uh, because it's important that the member states uh, now utilize uh, this uh, breathing space uh, as a window of opportunity to reform their own own economies uh, so that they are more resilient uh, once uh, the interest rates will at at some point uh, rise, uh, rise again in some years mm. or in, in, in the medium long term.
0: I mean, from your experience, how confident are you that, um, uh, for example, next year, uh, they, they will, the Europeans will be able to attach meaningful conditionality to the recovery funding. So if, for example, if, if a hand three, four reforms are in the country specific recommendations, um, and, and a government is receiving tens of billions of euros in, in investment spending, do, do you, do you see a way of making that more effective than, for example, as you mentioned in the book, how ineffective it was in Italy in, in 2011?
1: We have a saying in Finland that, uh, salmon is uh, such a wild, wild salmon is such a valuable fish that it's uh, worth fishing even if you don't uh, catch it <laughs> i prefer actually white fish uh, to, to salmon uh, it goes the same goes the same way i think uh, still uh, and that's a uh, kind of uh, it's a amazing in the sense that uh, instead of uh, perfectionism mm. and uh, this means uh, in the European context uh, that uh, what I what I try to say is basically that uh, yes I think it is uh, uh, possible to support uh, the national policymakers uh, to achieve uh, more sustainable growth and uh, better resilience of the of the economy by reforms uh, in case that uh, you are very focused. Uh, you don't have a list of uh, 20 reforms, but you are very focused on, say, uh, two or three or four broad, yeah. broad lines of reform. Like uh, labor market reform in in Italy would be very helpful, certainly. Mm-hmm. And then uh, how you do it is uh, it's basically that uh, the Eurogroup uh, or the ECOFIN, but uh, it's essentially the Eurogroup is the key decision-making body here. Uh, on the basis of uh, the Commission's, uh, European Commission's uh, proposals, uh, the Eurogroup uh, has uh, a uh, peer discussion, so peer pressure on each and every member state uh, on the reforms. Uh, and that's, this means that uh, in fact uh, the Eurogroup uh, and the leadership of the Eurogroup is uh, is very important in this regard uh, because uh, you have to use this uh, platform, use this forum in order to provide uh, constructive uh, encouragement, uh, positive pressure on member states uh, so that uh, the other member states uh, explain and tell, tell to different member states, uh, the other member states that uh, what are the main priorities. Uh, say, from the more objective European uh, standpoint. Mm. Then you can uh, achieve something like, I, I believe, uh, as you referred previously, we achieved uh, together with the French authorities, uh, we achieved uh, something which uh, has uh, supported uh, Emmanuel Macron first as uh, Minister of uh, Industry and uh, then uh, then as, as President uh, to reform certain segments, certain dimensions of uh, all the French economy and uh, and society without underestimating any of the difficulties uh, he is facing or any reformer is, uh, is facing in, in the member states.
0: Mm. And, and on the straight fiscal side, um, I mean, you mention in the book um, a sort of ingenious idea for a very a very simple rule. I mean, the, 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 the joke has always been that Europe's fiscal rules are so complicated that only one person understands them and he went mad (laughs) so you you, I mean obviously I exaggerate but you you have this idea of a um a simple government expenditure rule where government spending should not exceed long-term income how I, given that we have just gone through an immense crisis, do you, are you more confident that something that simple could be a, uh, signed up to in, in the
1: coming years? I think uh, at least it would make uh, plenty of sense. Uh, that's uh, usually a very uh, sound and solid uh, starting point of, uh, of uh, any policy making. In this context, uh, both uh, the EU Fiscal Board. Uh, and uh, for instance, the uh, IMF uh, and its fiscal department, uh, led by former Portuguese uh, finance minister Vitor Gaspar, both have recommended uh, one variation of uh, of uh, this kind of uh, simple rule based on on uh, an expenditure rule. And uh, it's not only that uh, they have recommended it; it has been tested in practice. Uh, I think. Uh, Uh, The Netherlands, uh, Denmark, Sweden and uh, also my my native country Finland uh, are examples of uh, and mostly rather positive examples of uh, using uh, an expenditure rule of uh, one or another kind uh, in order to uh, ensure uh, fiscal sustainability. And uh, there are basically two essential things. One is that uh, you link uh, Debt sustainability, or you link your your development of public debt uh, to its uh, ratio of uh, cross domestic domestic product uh, GDP, so that uh, basically it's very simple at the uh, at the uh, say uh, level of uh, first degree in a sense that uh, you have a growth rate, uh, you have a Debt rate uh, and uh, you have uh, one in the denominator the other one in the denominator and uh, if your economic growth is uh, rapid and strong then uh, you can uh, have more debt in absolute terms uh, because in relative terms uh, that is uh, manageable. Of course uh, then uh, you should use your debt always uh, in a future-oriented way in order to ensure long-term medium-term growth potential and uh, sustainability of your national economy and also of your public uh, finances. So that's uh, that's the basic logic of this. And uh, second is that uh, you, you should have a, a rather very clear benchmark in your public spending and uh, stick to that. Uh, that's been key in the Nordic countries uh, mm. to ensure fiscal sustainability. That would be clearly, say, uh, smarter and simpler than the current rules. Uh, um, I don't. I don't want to go into the technical details of the current rules. Uh, at the same time, it's important that uh, we don't uh, throw the baby with the bathwater. In a sense, that mm-hmm. uh, while the current rules are complicated, uh, uh, but there has been some reason why they are complicated, uh, and uh, over the past decade, uh, they have been than nothing, if we hadn't, if we had nothing, mm. our public debt was, would be larger, and we would have been, we would have had much more difficulties in responding to the current crisis, for instance, uh, than uh, thanks to having these uh, these rules.
0: Yeah, actually, the, the the short chapter you had on the effectiveness of the six pack and the two pack with the Belgian government was very interesting in that respect. So that. Uh, you know, it it it, it was an eye opener to how the rules that quite have been ignored by some big states uh, in the past um, were actually effective, even if it was not, even if it was relatively at the margin of, of fiscal policy.
1: Um, that's you. Yeah. Sorry. Go, go ahead. That's that's correct. In the in the case of Belgium, this uh, uh, worked. Uh, Also partly because uh, there was, uh, I mean, Belgium is a very, say, Europe-minded, European-oriented country, and the population is uh, pro-European. And uh, secondly, uh, the political leaders uh, felt the pressure of their own people uh, to respect uh, uh, the rules, not not for the sake of respecting some uh, technical rules, but uh, because of... uh, long-term sustainability of uh, of the economy of, uh, of Belgium and besides they had had uh, just uh, just had uh, uh, the period of uh, 500 and uh, in the end 541 yes. days uh, without uh, central government uh, so uh, uh, as a result of uh, the pressure put by put by the European Commission on the basis of the fiscal rules uh, the Belgian politicians were first able to put together a budgetary coalition, and then uh, later on this became uh, the government of uh, Prime Minister Elio Di Rupo. Hmm. And in that sense, this is a a good example of uh, how you can meaningfully apply the fiscal rules. Of course, uh, what we did uh, with other member states was uh, often very similar, and there were various degrees of, uh, say, success or failure in this regard. Uh, the overall picture is that uh, since uh, the euro crisis uh, uh, depth to gdp ratio it measures the public debt uh, accurately or as accurately as, as one can have it have it uh, so this depth to gdp ratio uh, came down in europe not a lot but uh, several percentage points uh, mm. which then helped uh, most of the EU member states uh, to spend uh, now during the corona pandemic, uh, when we have to provide, uh, and have still have to provide, uh, fiscal stimulus. So in that sense, yeah. uh, I think uh, these rules are actually better than their reputation, but still uh, I'm very very much in favor of uh, reforming them because uh, we, we can have, and we should have, a smarter and simpler rules, which also take into account uh, the kind of uh, level increase uh, in the public debt uh, caused by the corona pandemic.
0: You finished writing the book in the middle of last year, and obviously a lot has happened since, uh, as you were just uh, touching on there. Um, uh, and the, the entire book is about how the Eurozone's fiscal structures are a work in progress, So when the virus struck, the ECB had no choice but to create a pandemic emergency purchase program or PEP to make space for huge government debt issuance. Now, so far, this has been highly successful in narrowing spreads and raising inflation expectations, but it does prompt some big questions I'd like to run by you. Mm -hmm. First, are we already seeing some PEP mission creep? Its immediate purpose was to allow fiscally constrained governments to use their automatic stabilizers and compressed spreads, but it's now clearly being used as a core policy instrument to restore inflation to target. Isn't this just a way of getting around the limits set in the public sector purchasing program or PSPP? And then my second question is, while the PEP is meant to be a temporary instrument Markets already assume that the securities bought under the program will remain on the ECB's balance sheet for at least as long as those bought under the asset purchase program. And in, some, in fact, some people have gone further and called for the PEP to be monetized. Even your former advisor, uh, Veza Virhila, has suggested this could be a better solution than distorting the policy stance indefinitely. How would you respond to these uh, concerns?
1: Thank you, thank you very much for this, uh, this, uh, or these uh, fairly broad questions. I tried to, I tried to respond uh, uh, concisely and briefly uh, to the extent that I remember the question still. (laughs) So, uh, let me explain the reasoning of uh, of the governing council uh, concerning uh, uh, PEP, uh, which is uh, the stands for the pandemic emergency purchase uh, program. And you asked about whether it has, uh, suffered uh, or whether we are seeing uh, emission creep the aim of uh, the, the objective of uh, pep is uh, is uh, clearly twofold first of all uh, to address the risk of uh, market fragmentation and uh, any uh, impairment uh, to monetary policy transmission the second uh, objective is uh, to ease the monetary policy stance, uh, in order to uh, accommodate part of the demand shortages uh, due to the uh, corona crisis so as to bring us back to the path of uh, of uh, reaching our inflation aim. So the program was designed uh, to work in a flexible manner in order to accommodate uh, also the asymmetric nature of the shock uh, because the shock is both symmetric uh, It's everybody, but it's also asymmetric, it's some countries stronger than than others. Another aspect is that PEP is not not the only monetary tool we have used, it is a complement to the previous and still used public sector purchase program as well as uh, to to the other monetary policy instruments uh, we use, uh, including the negative policy rates, uh, uh, refinancing operations, uh, and uh, forward uh, guidance. So it's part of this overall toolbox uh, that we nowadays use, uh, and uh, it should be seen as uh, one essential element uh, in the current context of this uh, overall uh, toolbox. And uh, Our main main objective is, as you well know, is uh, is, uh, price stability and uh, all our monetary policy instruments uh, contribute to this uh, goal. Inflation has been a long time below our inflation target or price stability target, which is uh, close but below 2%. And uh, we do calibrate uh, in all circumstances uh, our policy. So that uh, we can uh, achieve this target uh, in the uh, medium term. This is uh, essential also for the pandemic uh, emergency purchase program which has been calibrated uh, respecting uh, proportionality and, uh, and uh, uh, in terms of uh, size and uh, nature, of, uh, nature of the shock. shock. So it is uh, if I use uh, the words of uh, european court of justice uh, in another context uh, it is it has been both uh, and it is uh, both uh, necessary and uh, and uh, proportional mm-hmm. you're asking also about uh, the nature of uh, the paper, whether it is uh, emergency temporary or whether it will remain uh, on the balance sheet uh, for yeah. for one uh, as long as, uh, as uh, purchases under under the APP uh, our reasoning uh, is basically the following that uh, the governing council will conduct uh, net asset purchases uh, under the PEP program until at least uh, the end of uh, June next year so June 2021 and uh, there's an important uh, Addition to that. And in any case, uh, until it judges, until the governing council judges that uh, the coronavirus crisis phase is uh, over. And by that, we don't refer only to health effect, but uh, to the economic uh, damage uh, of the crisis. And uh, the governing council will reinvest uh, the uh, principal payments uh, from the maturing securities that are. Purchased under PEP until at least at the end of 2022. So you can see that we are playing a, a long game, which is uh, well grounded in the current context. And uh, we even say also in in our statement, I don't recall the exact wording, but we say that uh, the the essential meaning is that uh, essential message is that uh, the future role of uh, of the PEP or portfolio will be managed uh, so that uh, it will maintain uh, the appropriate monetary policy stance uh, mm-hmm. for the eurozone. That's how we see it. Uh, see it, and uh, and maybe to uh, anyway to summarize, this uh, monetary policy stance uh, depends on uh, all our instruments, uh, not only on PEP, even though it is uh, a very important element of it. Uh, or even uh, other asset purchase programs or other elements of quantitative easing. But uh, it also depends on the level of uh, policy rates on uh, the provision of uh, refinancing operations uh, as well as uh, on, uh, on uh, our communication or forward uh, guidance. Yeah.
0: Okay. Um, one final question. Did you enjoy writing the book enough to consider writing another one?
1: Many thanks for the for the question. I, I've written uh, several books in uh, in Finnish, uh, <laughs> mostly during my summer holidays. Uh, I have a uh, box uh, in my summer cottage uh, which uh, some people could call, call studio. It's uh, two meters by two meters, uh, so four square meters with a view to my leg and so on. And uh, over the past uh, twenty years, uh, it has inspired me to write uh, six books uh, altogether. So uh, I think my productivity is quite uh, high. I don't about I don't know about uh, the um, uh, the circulation or or the printing numbers, but uh, my productivity is uh, one and a half books per square meter. So, uh, <laughs> try to try to match that. Uh, <laughs> so. That's a, so I, I will I will continue writing. Uh, but I I promised to my wife uh, uh, even before the pandemic that uh, I will not write uh, anything this summer, so that we can enjoy the summer of our twenty fifth uh, wedding anniversary uh, in calm terms. Well, we got the we got the COVID crisis, but uh,
0: hmm.
1: actually I've been as you asked I've been writing a. a new preface for the German edition of my my book uh, which will be published uh, in uh, february next year or in in early early part of uh, next year so uh, probably i will i will uh, focus next uh, on uh, economic policy in finland uh, that which has been uh, my uh, special interest and hobby for several decades and uh, there's uh, something to be said about uh, how to reform this country yeah, and uh, then continue on, on European issues as well.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, thank you. And to remind listeners today, Ollie Rain and I have been discussing his Walking the High Wire, published in 2020 by Paul Macmillan. Ollie thank you very much
1: for joining the podcast. Thank you very much, Tim, and uh, have a good day.